0: Making It Up, a weekly culture news podcast focused on analyzing and debating anything that comes up of interest in creative culture. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Can. The format of this podcast is a bit of like catch-up, and then two main items of news, one chosen by Eugene and one by myself.
1: We pick our topics from the Making briefing, which is an email we send out twice a week filled with current news, interesting links, and analysis on culture. On making it up, we talk through the things we're most interested in and try to work our way to some sort of conclusion. Often working through thoughts and challenges along the way. That's true. That's true. How uh, how was your past week?
0: Ooh, really great. So I'm glad to speak to you about it because I actually met up with a whole bunch of making people or making oh, related damn. people. Yeah, my weekend was just like full of it. Um, so on Saturday I met up with. Your friend Sally who asked me actually a lot about making and one thing that I wanted to draw out from that conversation is that she was so pissed you you do a podcast and you didn't tell her.
1: Oh, I'm well you know I'm really bad at self-marketing myself.
0: Well, it was partially that. It was partially the marketing thing that she thinks we could do better, which we could. But also the fact she was like Eugene doesn't tell people about this thing that he does like as a personal thing because it's like on that border between like friend and business. And I guess on a friend's side, she was also like, you should tell people that you do a podcast. And she's trying to rope you into a crypto one. So watch out.
1: Yeah, I know. Well, it is interesting because when I think about it, I look at that world and it's I don't know. I probably should just be more deliberate about it.
0: Okay, so but I
1: I, yeah. I recall I recall reading one of those like meme accounts like overheard in like L.A. or overheard in New York, and it was like one of those comments about how everyone has like a podcast now. Oh, it's Let me like, find it. Oh,
0: I know which one though. It's about because it was drawing the equivalent of something else. Anyway, but you you look it's for like, it. You look for it while I keep talking, and then like immediately right. after meeting Sally, I had set up coffee with Jenny Sue, who also do you know this person personally? Jenny Sue, sorry, Jenny S. Yeah,
1: yeah. Jen S. Oh, you do. Wait, the photographer.
0: No, she works for Swire. Okay, no. so that's not super important, except that I actually didn't get around to asking her how she knew I was in London. But I am just assuming that it is from this podcast. Shout out to Sally and Jenny, who are probably listening. (laughs) Because she just messaged me and was like, oh, I'm passing through London. She's usually based in Beijing, I think, or Shanghai. She's usually based in China. And she was like, do you want to meet up? I have like a small window of time. I'm free in London because she was here for work. Um, Yeah, so it's just really cool. It was like a weekend nice. and then of- then you, you had a lot of art. Yes, so then I met- Sandwiched after, in there. Yeah, so I was actually at Freeze Fair, but I was not at the Sotheby's Freeze Auction, which we will talk about later, where the Banksy piece self-destructed. But I, it was fun because I did get to talk to, you know, I'm going to feel really bad, but I don't know if you pronounce his name, Nabil or Nabil.
1: I think it's Nabil.
0: Okay, I'm going to go with Nabil. So the Banksy thing happens on Friday, and then I meet Nabil at Freeze Fair on Saturday, which is at, in Regent's Park over a weekend in the fall every year. And I was really excited to go anyway. And then um, Nabil was really great on Slack. He like, intentionally told me, hey, I'm going to be at Freeze if you want to meet up while we're there and walk around. And so I guess because of the situation, of the context where we were already meeting in an art fair, we wound up talking a lot about art necessarily. And not not art-like. It was interesting because it wasn't like a subjective thing where it was like, oh, I like this because it's purple or I like this because X, Y, Z. But we did talk a lot about how the art market has difficulty with um, representing people of color and of showing women's work. And then we also talked about Banksy and how it's so interesting what he does to the valuation of art. But we can go into that later. My main thing is that it was, this is like the first time I have gotten to personally benefit from the global make in community because the fact that I got to hang out with Nabil nice. and then like I got to hang out with people on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday this past weekend. And I just felt like it yeah. was really rewarding. It wasn't just, it wasn't yeah. just like, oh, I need a person to hang out in London because I don't know anyone. It was, these people have a lot of existing common ground with me. And they're interested in talking about and questioning the same stuff I am. And when I meet them, actually we can really cut to the chase because you don't need a lot of that small talk. And there's like a pre-existing body of work to discuss. Body of work being like making. Yeah,
1: I have a question to ask you about that. Yeah, go for it. What does it mean when you go into these situations and you guys are bonded by something that's a little bit less tangible. You know what I mean? Like, you're not really bonded by like, oh, you you really enjoy fashion or you really enjoy like sports. It's like kind of, well, I guess art is in some ways tangible, but I guess it's art in itself is not like a consumeristic pursuit, right?
0: You know what? I Does didn't find it that it? problematic. So what what happens, I also want to give a shout out to Seth, who Nabil and I met together at the Tate Modern on Sunday. And- The fact that we could meet, and it just so happened to be art, but I was able to pick something that you are going to have a perspective on. Like I didn't just have to pick like coffee or having drinks. Do you know what I mean? Like I knew that going to these places with making members would, even if they didn't like it, like spark conversation. And I think the fact that even though we're not some easier to understand physical Entity, right? Like we're not sports. Sports is the easiest to gather around when you all play the same sport. We do have enough solidity that in conversation, you know what each other is approximately interested in. And you're prepared to, you would have loved it because you're all, people are already prepared to have a higher level of conversation.
1: I guess that's that's what I was kind of looking at or for. And the one thing that I've experienced is that these people, these people is a bad way of putting it, but people in general are kind of seeking these types of conversations. But sometimes it's challenging to have, like maybe the people around you in your immediate circle, like that's not really what they're interested in.
0: I mean, there there are some tangible things. It's not one tangible thing, like sports, like I said, but there is a general interest in fashion and art and media and travel and those are all subjects that have a lot of depth and those are all subjects that we we discuss like at length.
1: How do you guys handle disagreements then? Mm. Like topical disagreements.
0: Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I don't know if they were being polite because like they just met me and so they were like holding their punches but I just try to think of it kind of like how I approach this podcast. If I have if I have a just dissenting opinion, I'm going to express it but not not ever in a way where I'm putting down your opinion. Right? I'm not yeah. I'm not going to be like Eugene, you're wrong. Actually, maybe I've done that on this pod, but anyway, I'm not going to say that like you're wrong because XYZ. <laughs> I'm going to say you know this is my stance on the same thing, and I'm gonna make it clear in the ways I disagree, but it doesn't make your point of view not valid, yeah, I guess Got what it, it what it was in my head is really thinking about it similarly to how I do this podcast, yeah,
1: which you do very well, thank you. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Apparently, apparently so. I guess so.
1: before we jump into things, I can give you a little bit of a rundown on what I'm up to. I would say the last week since we've last spoken, like I think structurally and internally within making, it's been a little bit of a moving, sort of shifting dialogue where we've kind of had to reorientate ourselves based on the remote nature that, you know, you being out of office getting everyone on the same page, building systems to make sure everyone's able to kind of understand where we are at any given moment in time, knowing not everyone's online at the same time in the same room together, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the one thing that you kind of can look at those as small victories because being able to work remotely is both challenging, but extremely rewarding if you can get it done because... I mean, your footprint is that much larger, right? There's much more flexibility, et cetera. Um, that's one thing that I guess maybe I should give an example of that. And it's just something as simple as knowing on any given day, what is the thing that we're working towards? What is today's goal? What is the story that is going out today? What is the marketing assets that need to be created? Yeah. So that to me has been a little bit rewarding. I, that, that to me has been honestly a, a win because once you have that foundation, solidified, it's easier to build on something, right? You know, you want to create more marketing assets or whatever it may be. You want to do more stories, then you know the framework is there and it's a matter of, you know, potentially it requires seeking out more manpower, but at least it's there.
0: Yeah, I've been trying to be intentionally over communicative if possible. And I can see Nate behind you and he can attest to this because I've been like privately messaging him about some things just to be like super clear about work issues if it doesn't fit in the group chat, but I want to be able to like show my support or provide my two cents. And I do wonder, my one hesitation, I do feel also really positively about how things are sort of falling into place with the remote work. But I do wonder if your side and our side will wind up working more because of the time zone difference. I actually feel more about this, more of this concern for your end because you're... You should be going to sleep, but I'm still working and I'm not going to hold back.
1: I actually feel a little bit more at ease because I know that there's like a handoff there.
0: I don't want to hold back on sending emails and messages and et cetera. But I also know that I'm pinging your phones. But I also cannot be responsible yeah. for how you handle your notifications. So of course, of course. it just has to be like, well, And maybe that changes something that you guys set, right? Like maybe you guys all need to do a do not disturb mode because knowing that Alec and Sharice over there are going to start like doing all the work.
1: Yeah. But arguably, if the structure and the scheduling works out properly, then you can work ahead because you know what the roadmap for the next seven to 10 to 14 days looks like.
0: Yeah, I just meant in terms surely in terms kind of, of my working hours and your working hours don't overlap. So yeah. there's some adjustment. But it you know, it did work a lot in our favor when we were um the time zone thing, when we were scheduling stuff in LA and you could go to sleep and I could keep moving that forward. And I was thinking about it and like I was like, This would not have been possible. If I had been in Hong Kong, because of, I would have had to stay up in order to get it done.
1: Yeah, so let's get right into it. My subject this week is how to build a low-tech website. This emanated from an article featured by Low-Tech Magazine, which began in 2007. They created a story around building a low-tech, self-hosted, and solar-powered version of their traditional Low-Tech Magazine. So it was sort of a, it was, I guess, in many ways, an experiment.
0: Well, it's great because it's it's not just an article, but it's something that they're practicing.
1: Yes. The story itself began quite early on. At the top where they discuss how the internet was supposed to dematerialize and decrease energy usage, but instead it's largely concentrated wealth and become a huge consumer of energy. So it's kind of been like, hey, it's supposed to be all these things, but in reality, this has become the re- the real play out of everything.
0: It's this has so become sort of the reality of everything. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Sorry to jump in. I know you, there's like numbers that are really interesting, but just that basic premise that we think of the internet as this free all access thing, but there is a physical cost on on the world.
1: Yes, so some stats to provide context. The average website taken from the top 500,000 domains had an increase in size of an actual website from 0.45 megabytes in 2010 to 1.7 megabytes in June of
0: 2018. Yeah, and this is per page weight. Not just, not a whole website.
1: Yeah. And then on that same note, mobile rose from 0.15 megabytes in 2011 to 1.6 megabytes in 2018. And after kind of laying out the context, laying out the situation, low-tech kind of gets into how you can create a quote-unquote low-tech website that Mm -hmm. actually uses less energy. And some of the key points they listed were creating static sites, which are only generated once. There probably is some technical stuff in here that I'm glancing over. But I think just for the premise of less the technical side, but just the strategies they employed, I think that's helpful or enough for this conversation anyways.
0: The article is great because there's like two levels to it. There is a basic level that I think anyone who uses the internet is going to understand. And then there is a deeper level for people interested in actually developing technology where they can... Pick at the strategy and think of ways that it can be better, and ask more questions.
1: Yeah, they also suggest dithered images, which can make images ten times less resource intensive. Dithered is that sort of real lo-fi look, though, right? Where it's
0: yeah.
1: I don't know how would you describe dithered. It's, yeah, it's kind of like when you of, get it's a form a zine. of
0: image compression. Yeah, yeah, it kind of looks like Risograph, graph, but on the internet.
1: Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Um, they also suggest default typefaces and no logos. The next one would be they also suggest no third-party tracking ads or cookies and finally the big one is the website is run off of an off-the-grid solar panel energy generating system yeah so that means and this is probably the most fascinating thing is that sometimes in inclement in times of inclement weather where there's not enough sunlight there's a chance the battery runs out and the site goes down.
0: Yeah, so what's really fascinating is actually right now, you can see that it's telling you there's only 7% battery left on the website. Yeah, before I got on, that's what it was at. It was at 7%. Yesterday or the day before when I was looking at this, there wasn't a battery indication, which I take to mean was full battery. It is super fascinating to me. We can talk about the solar power in more depth, but I just want to go over the stuff from the the other previous things you talked about because a lot of those are choices that we can make as individual website owners, creators, designers, or even users because you can express a dislike for certain things. And some of them, it is really indicative of the mindset that we've got without even realizing it. Like the fact that the reason people don't use static sites is because people want websites to be constantly online and constantly updated but there should be an evaluation of does this thing actually need to be online and one thing they mention is how you would think that writing a document or filling out a spreadsheet is an offline activity but because of the way you know Google Docs and Dropbox has set things up everything is constantly being refreshed to the cloud and mm-hmm. is that actually a necessity like, If you think not just about like as a user in terms of experience, but if you think about having that requirement does mean an actual energy toll, like an energy toll on the world.
1: Uh, yeah, it's interesting because like you you don't really think that much about it. But I what I find fascinating is, and I think I should probably preface this too, because I took the liberty of injecting a little bit of my own commentary when I said at the very beginning that The article was sort of a commentary on how the internet was supposed to dematerialize and decrease energy usage. Instead, it's concentrated wealth and become a huge consumer of energy. I don't think they actually mentioned anything about the concentration of wealth. That was more my input. But the reason why I think subconsciously I put that in there was if you look at some of the things that they recommend that you don't do to help create a more low-energy website, they're things that are almost critical for you to have a sustainable business on the internet. Yeah. And what that means is like basically the act of selling something. Yeah. And obviously tracking ads, cookies help that. Yes. Default typeface, no logo, that sort of removes brand from the equation in some ways. So ultimately you can create a low-tech version, but then it also brings into question how do you sustain an online business? Yeah. And unfortunately, for better or worse, online businesses have largely been driven by advertisements and e-commerce.
0: I mean, they get into that at the end. That's why they turn this entire article into an explanation of how they are planning on monetizing. And they do ask for people to consider sponsoring them, essentially, or like putting down money to indicate like a commitment to low-tech magazine. But I mean, I'm mostly fascinated by if it's even possible for internet users to change their habits. Since I moved to London, the EU laws about cookies are stricter, sorry, are more strict. Yes. And every website I go to, I have to encounter this cookies pop-up. Yeah. And some of them, they give you the possibility of denying. And some of them give you like a whole bunch of read this, read that links. And some of them, they don't provide any of that. It's either accept it or you don't get to read. Like- you either press yes now or you have to close the tab. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: it is interesting to think about, you know how people are more and more conscious about their diet or recycling? And so like you make daily decisions about those things for you know a bigger cause. It would be interesting to see, is it possible to be an internet user who does that? You know, I intentionally don't visit XYZ sites because they're high energy, because they have the worst you know, they put the most tracking on me, you know, those Mm -hmm. reasons.
1: I guess the thing that we've kind of recognized is that there are certain things that we feel we should be more passionate about, i.e. privacy. But the reality of the situation is that unless there's a greater value for me to not go there or not to use this product, then you're probably going to maintain your habits.
0: I wonder if the people who are really active about environmental issues would take up this cause and suggest that you don't yeah. visit certain websites or you do something alternative. I know some people do hacking activities like building extensions or apps that will allow you to visit, let's say the New York Times or CNN, but then strip everything from it. So you just get a lo-fi version, but it it's not because they intentionally made a lo-fi version. You're just taking out all the heavy stuff. Yeah. Something else I wanted to mention about this article is that low-tech is really intentional about being super transparent about their hardware and software, like all the mechanics of it. And besides being admirable, like this level of transparency with their readers, I wouldn't be able to tell you this information about the websites I run or am a part of. Mm. I just thought it was interesting how, and, and do you know, right? Like, do you know where our Macon server is located?
1: I don't know, I wanna say it's like Austin, but I don't think that's right.
0: I'm not trying to say that we know. need to make a change, but the fact that we don't know is also interesting. Like we've just left some decisions up to other people.
1: Trying to, um, just give me a second to think about this. I want, <laughs> it's interesting because you always hear about supply chain transparency. What is the future of supply chain transparency in the digital world? In a way, like where are you getting all your stuff from? And is that even something valuable? I I do see value because if you look on the low-tech website, the server stats suggest quite a few things like, oh, Barcelona, time, battery status, power used, uptime, etc. It would be interesting to see how this is played out in a greater context and like the actual energy usage. Mm. And I think that what is nice is that I don't know if it's nice or not, but it's more if you think about this topic at hand, it's just never been discussed. And if it's never been discussed, then people generally might warm up to it, but they've never been, they've never had this bit of information put in front of them. So I think that's like an interesting thing. I just, I'm curious too. It's like if it was always in your, in front of you, knowing, hey, if you have your phone, on the brightest setting, what does that mean, right? Yeah, Is that gonna influence your habits?
0: Yeah, it is interesting because there is, I mean, if you're not, if we as individual users are not interested in the larger world impact, there are individual consequences as well. And one of the things that Low Tech mentions is the fact that heavy websites and heavy usage affects the longevity of your devices. So depending on the kind of user you are, and we know this in a way already, that you will have to replace your phones and computers and tablets more frequently. And maybe that would be convincing to someone. Mm -hmm. Not just, you know, like how Apple has screen time? Maybe it's like energy meter. Apple would never do this because it's not in their favor, I don't think, but.
1: I do look at something similar to where the carbon footprint of eating meat.
0: Yeah, but the digital stuff has the very real possibility of doing the math on that because it's currently existing. You would just have to have someone clever to run an app or something in the background that would give me an output. But then the diet thing is very hard because you have to somehow log your eating habits. Yeah. Until we become robots. And then we have like biometrics in our body. And when you eat, like it will just automatically calculate. Sorry, I've been in school a lot. So everything we talk about, I'm just like, Taking it to the extreme. Um, Okay. One thing I did want to mention, you know, we talked about what brings communities together. And did you look at the comments on the low-tech article?
1: Yeah. I looked at a few of them. I didn't run through all of them. It was interesting. I was looking at this article and I was like, man, this is a really long article. But then most of the comments are what contribute to the overall length, or at least the scroll length of it.
0: Yeah, no, I had that same experience. I was like, I feel like I'm at the end of this article, but why are there so much like like why is there so much more? And it's really nice to see so many people in the comments, and I can see that lowtech has responded as well. and everyone's writing like essays in the comments, and it's mostly technical, as in people are asking technical questions and have technical feedback. It's good because that means, you know, low tech hit on something that their readership is really invested in.
1: Yeah. It would be great if this could be a guide that people could follow. And let's say there's a hundred tips on this Mm. to kind of achieve where if you hit all hundred, yeah, you're, you're doing the absolute best. But hey, if you can only do 30 of the 100, that's still better than what you're currently doing, right?
0: I think maybe they would do that because as much as this is a a starting point, I think regular people need more actual steps. Like contact your internet service provider, you know, contact your domain hosting and ask XYZ. Like that would be what it takes. So as I alluded to in the intro already, my subject today is probably very familiar with people and it is a groundbreaking event that happened in the art world last Friday. Banksy has a painting of a spray paint on canvas painting done in 2006 of The Girl with Balloon, which is very recognizable. It's like a black silhouetted girl in the bottom left and she's the like most iconic shaped balloon yeah and so that was going up for auction at Sotheby's on Friday, eventually finished at 1 point4 million pounds and it was being competed over by two telephone bidders. so the bidders weren't in the room and also they were being they were competing through Sotheby's staff. I say all of this because there is a opinion unconfirmed opinion that one of the bidders is from Banksy's team, as in yeah. even the bidding was orchestrated and possibly even I have, the buyer. I
1: have to make a small correction. Yeah, it's one. it was 1.4 million US dollars, not British pounds.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Still oh my, my goodness. Sorry, I just, I can't believe I've only been here three weeks and this is what's happening to me. Um, yes, 1.4 million USD. That's correct. In case anyone had forgotten that I was in London, I'm gonna be constantly slipping up to remind you. Right. So the auction finishes, confirmed. You know, the auctioneer is like, done deal. And then an alarm goes off and the picture slips halfway through the frame. So it drops to a certain point and then it starts being shredded, kind of like if you were using an office paper shredder. So as it's going through the bottom of the frame, it's like being shredded into strips. And with further investigation, there's a remote-controlled mechanism on the back. They also found a man in the sales room operating an electronic device. The man is not identified.
1: Do you think there was some sort of inside job here?
0: Yeah, so the New York Times definitely talks about that at length. And that is really interesting because if Sotheby's is complicit, it does make it less effective in a way, because I think without knowing if Sotheby's is complicit, it makes me feel like Banksy is succeeding at questioning the art auctioning system and the ups and downs of art valuation and how opaque that is or how seemingly difficult to crack. But as the New York Times suggests, Sotheby's was in on the game because of the frame, right? Like the New York Times questions how Sotheby's could have possibly let like a shredder pass their notice in the frame and how they would have allowed this man, like an anonymous man in the sales room operating an electronic device into the room, especially when there's like bag checks in everywhere in London. Did
1: you watch the video? I watched
0: the video as well.
1: There's like a video, yeah, the video too. There's a video that shows the setup And the construction of the frame. Yeah,
0: and then also there's like questions like, okay, why was it hanging on a wall instead of being set up on an easel like pieces sometimes are? Um, So I don't know. I don't know. I feel like, I guess if I have to indulge this conspiracy theory, I feel like there is at least one person at Sotheby's who orchestrated this. But I do believe that there are people, there were many people in the room who didn't know it was going to happen. On the Sotheby's Some net. of the
1: reactions looked pretty genuine.
0: Um, I definitely don't think the audience knew. And I also don't think like if Sotheby's helped make this happen, it, was, it had to be like on a need to know basis. Otherwise, we're just not going to tell you.
1: What I'm curious is how is this artwork going to be presented now? Assuming the buyer can still take Ownership of it if they so choose, right? Well,
0: what if the buyer (laughs) is Banksy as well?
1: And they expect to never pay?
0: I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I guess what is the most interesting is Banksy's ability to make people actually care about art in this way. As in, I don't think I would ever pay attention to a Sotheby's auction. And it's not like the first time art has been valued at really high prices that make you question, you know, why is it worth as much? But Banksy succeeds in getting people's attention.
1: Yeah, it, it does make me wonder because a lot of Banksy's work, part of it's performative. Like this is pretty performative, but also I think that even his stencil work, however, I don't know, what's the right word to, to not, I don't want to devalue the work of stencil work, but it's just like, it's more, it's the value of the commentary actually is arguably much more impactful than the artwork itself, right? I definitely agree. And I think I would I would say that that's what's most fascinating is that Banksy seems to have found a way to create this really interesting holistic art experience where traditionally we, lo- I mean, maybe this is the me as the less intelligent, sort of like, oh, I recognize art, but I don't know the finer details so much as maybe someone that's deeply entrenched in that world. But art, generally, you look at it as something that is maybe less about the message. For for like a noob, it's more like, hey, this is technically something I would never be able to do Mm -hmm. versus a stencil. Oh, like, yeah, I could do a stencil. You know what I mean? But then you kind of look at it as a whole package and like, Mm-hmm. The messaging is arguably the most powerful thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think right? I have the benefit of having actually done art history classes and been required to do reading about art, but I definitely think the value in art is not going to a museum and saying, oh, look at all the photorealistic paintings, but t- that this is my personal feeling on it, but what you can get from art is really understanding the history of why someone made something and what propelled them to make that particular piece at that moment in time. And so the -hmm. value of Banksy's work is not the aesthetic composition of a stencil and like, where is the balloon placed and what color is the balloon, but everything surrounding why and how he made that. And then how people are reacting in this case, in the the Sotheby's event.
1: And maybe it's just the fact that the artwork is so simple that it actually requires you to hone in on the message more so than the actual technical execution.
0: I mean, Banksy is also, even though anonymous, he does provide commentary for you to try to understand his work. Like such as this event, he did post on Instagram with this caption, going, going, gone. And also quoting Picasso to say the urge to destroy is also a creative urge. So I'm not gonna try and read into that, but what I'm saying is that he does provide you material to think about.
1: I was I was thinking about this. And if the actual act to destroy the work was the goal, imagine if it was even more destructive because I mean, shredding something is not really that destructive. It is in a way, but imagine it like, Literally disintegrated. Yeah,
0: I thought about that.
1: Like a like a caught on fire or something. That'd
0: be really I mean, really obviously
1: cool. that's more dangerous, but where literally you could have nothing left. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it disappeared versus this is still sort of a tangible thing you yeah. see.
0: Yeah. I had that I had that same thought, you know, ignoring the mechanics of it and how they would get it done in a safe way. If they did just <laughs> make it totally destroyed. And even the shredding like they could have done I'm sure there's shredders that could have done it more finely in a way where it would be less able to be resuscitated
1: a good place to cap things off
0: yes I think so good place to wind it down if you are interested in learning more about Macon reading and listening to our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture you can visit us at macon.com
1: you can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend.
0: You can also reach us by DMing us on Instagram or emailing either of us at Eugene at Macon and Sharice at macon.com I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice.
1: And this is Making It Up.